Good morning, church. That wasn't me. Um, Before I get started, I want to say today is actually Pastor Woody and Kim's 40th wedding anniversary, which is why they're not here. Um, He was like, I think I should do something. I'm like, yes, yes, you should do something. Anniversaries only happen once a year. Um, 40th are also big ones, so you should do something. So I'm hoping they're out doing something. Um, So that's why he's not here. Personally, I'm very, very grateful to be with you all this morning. Um, My wife yesterday was raving about, well, not raving, but she just kept saying, like, how are you not, like, like moved by this? Well, there was a bear in our neighborhood, you know, which is, like, a big deal because I'm a city kid. Like, I'm still getting used to trees outside. When we moved from Midtown to Uptown, like I learned there's these things called cicadas that make noises. Um, I got bunnies in the yard. And so finally last night, I was, I was about to go to bed early. I was really proud of myself. I never go to bed early. And I was, let me see this video, what she's talking about. And it was a bear bear, you know? Like, it was actually outrunning a car. There was a guy in the car trying to follow it with his cell phone. It outran the car. And I was like, this is scary. And then the bear literally hopped over a chain-length fence. You know, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is dangerous, you know, like this is, so I'm happy to be here, right? I'm, I'm very, very grateful that God has me here, you know, like, whew, bears. All right, so I'm going to pray and then we're going to do actually the scripture and the word, you know, but I just want to say I'm happy to be here. Dear God, thank you so much for the blessing of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you this morning that we can call him wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Thank you that he's our Messiah, our Savior, and our friend. Thank you now for the reading of the scripture and uh, just the, the sermon about to come, Lord. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Help us to, to be your people who live and love like you live and love and shine for your glory. In your holy and precious name, amen. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We'll also have it up front. 1 John chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 to 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. A couple weeks ago, as I was preaching through 1 John chapter 3, I shared, you know, Martin Luther King once said, you know, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? As I got into this passage and started reading through 1 John 4, I felt a little nudging of the spirit. It was just like, really, Hank? That's, that's really? Oh, Henry, the spirit calls me Henry. I forgot. Um, is that really life's most persistent and urgent question? I was like, well, Martin said it. And, and the spirit was like, well, Martin's my child, but, you know, I think there's a more important one. So I went back to the text, and I read it, and I read it, and I realized something. For John, to the people he's writing this epistle to, and for us this morning, John seems to think that life's most persistent and urgent question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And John outlines in these first six verses the case he's been making. He made in the gospel according to John. He's made in a letter so far that Jesus is Lord. 
John's writing, and, and in the past, as we're going through 1 John chapter 3, he's touched on a bunch of these different things. But when you get to chapter 4, it's finally at the boiling point. John is separating those who believe and those who do not believe. And instead of just beating around the bush, he goes right in. And John wants us to know one thing. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who was from the beginning. In the gospel, in the epistle, John has stressed this fact over and over again. Everything that was made was made by Jesus. He's the one who spoke the world into existence. He's the one who made everything that we see, everything that we are, without a point of reference. Jesus is the creator God. Jesus is Lord. But John also stresses that Jesus is the one we have witnessed. John seems to think it's essential for us to understand that Jesus isn't just creator God who spoke the world into existence, but Jesus is God who walked among us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God take on skin. Eugene Peterson says, God moved into our neighborhood. But John seems to think it matters that he who lived in radiance now took on skin. That he who spoke the world into existence now was walking among creation. And John goes back and he says, this is the one we have witnessed. This past weekend, we had um, Brethren in Christ General Assembly, where we gather as Brethren in Christ from all over the country. And some of our missionaries come, so it's really all over the world. And we are, we're, we're, we're doing what we love to do and talk about all the, 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 the business of the church and, and all the minutiae of like all these different arguments, right? But we're talking about staying in line as brethren in Christ with these historic creeds, right? And there was someone who got up and said, and he wanted to push back a little bit on the Apostles' Creed, right? And I love when people push back. I'm like, ooh, this is good. I like you. We should hang, right? And he says, the thing I struggle with the Apostles' Creed is that it's not really Anabaptist, right? It starts off with Jesus came, and then it goes straight that Jesus will come again. It starts off and talks about Jesus dying, but it never talks about Jesus living. And we as Anabaptists care that Jesus lived. Because it's important for us to understand that Jesus didn't just come so he can relate to us, but he came so that we can know that as human beings, we can live to please God. It matters that Jesus came. And John, the one who knew Jesus best, the one who looked at Jesus and says, in him there is no sin. He wants you to know this morning that this Jesus we speak of, the one who created the world, is the same one we saw, is the same one we touched, is the same one we heard. But I think more than that, John wants all of us to know that that Jesus is the same one that you can touch and will touch you. It's the same one that you can hear, and he will hear you. It's the same one that you will see, for he sees you. It matters that Jesus came. It matters that Jesus lived. Amen? And John, throughout the apostle, and even now, throughout the gospel, and now in this letter, he sheds three names of Jesus that I just love. The first one is he sheds his light. Right? And I was talking about how, you know, I think it's great that we said Jesus is the light of the world. But Jesus himself looked at us as the church and says, no, 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 you are the light of the world. But what I love when John talks about Jesus being light, it's a reminder to us that God left up high to walk and enter into darkness. That God looked at the world as not as it should be and had a plan for our salvation. That God knew there was brokenness and Jesus is a light that will reconcile it. It matters that Jesus is light. But probably my favorite, one of my favorite names of Jesus is the fact that he's an advocate. An advocate. What I love about that is, I don't know about you, but I've never been perfect. You know, I've never even tried to be perfect, so there's that, Right? But what I love about Jesus being our advocate, it means, it means that he is on our side. 
He is on our team. You know, when we think about Jesus, it's not just important that he came. It's not just important that he lived. It's not just important that he died. It's not just important that he lives again, because that's the gospel. But it's also important that even right now, he stands before the Father on your behalf. He's your advocate. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can rejoice that not only is Jesus on our team, that the one who's perfect stands before the Father for us. He's our advocate. And John talks about Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. And I think we say this word so long and so much that we miss the significance. We look around the world, right, and see darkness. But if Jesus is Christ, then he is the light. We look at the world and see how the world is broken and is not as it should be. But if he's the Messiah and he's the Christ, then we know that from the beginning, God had a plan to make this world right. God had a plan for our salvation. God had a plan to heal the brokenness. Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as the Christ, is not only God's plan back then, it's God's plan today. Jesus is the Savior of the world. John wants you to know Jesus is Lord. And that's where he starts off in this passage. And then throughout the letter, he's talking to the church. He's talking to those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus. Because if Jesus is Lord, and because Jesus is Lord, and you're pledging allegiance to God and God alone, you have to live right. You have to live right. You have to follow and submit and surrender all to Jesus. And how you live right is to keep his commandments. And I said this a few weeks ago, and I'll keep saying it again. Every single thing that you understand that God has commanded you to do, you must do if you pledge allegiance to Christ. When Jesus says, love your enemies, that's not a suggestion, that's a commandment. When Jesus says, shine your light because you are the light of the world, that's not a suggestion, that's a commandment. When Jesus says, pray, pray for those who persecute you. That's not a suggestion, that's a commandment. When Jesus says, seek me first. That's not something you just try on Sundays and maybe Wednesday nights. That's something we need to do every single day because, again, it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. Every single commandment that you understand that Jesus has given to you, he expects you to do it. John says, you know what, if that seems too hard, I'll make it easy for you. Live and love like Jesus lived and loved. I first heard that, I think I first crystallized in my brain somewhere in high school, probably about 15 and 16, and it changed my life. It boiled down all of Christianity into one phrase. You know, like the Old Testament scholars had boiled it down to like 630-something commandments, depending on who your rabbi is, right? I think 634 is a good number, but it depends on your rabbi. Jesus boiled it down to two. But I'm not that smart, so he brought it down to one phrase for me. And it's live and love like Jesus lived and loved. That's the commandment that we all have to do. That's the expectations. And I've said this again, I'll say this forever, right? If this world doesn't know what the love of God feels like, that's not Jesus' fault, that's our fault. If this world only knows darkness, that's because we're not shining the light. If this world only knows brokenness, that's because we're not walking into the brokenness and partnering God to make it whole. Jesus calls all of us to live in love like he lived and loved. But John also stresses something that I think we miss. John says, if you belong to Jesus and you're a part of this church, you have to love the church. You have to love not the building, not the institutions. You have to love the people of the church. A lot of us have grown cynical in our faith. And part of it is from hurt. Part of it is from pain. Part of it is very largely justified. 
And I'm not here to demean your hurt, your pain, and all the things the church has done to you. But I am here to say that when you belong to the church, it is not enough to just complain about all the things the church is not. It's not enough to just say, this is where we all fall short. Because the more I study the scriptures, the Spirit always loves to remind me, you can complain about the church, but you are the church. You can complain about everything that's not. But I've left the spirit, God says, and I left you the church. And together, coming together, you can be the light of this world. So we have to get better, not just complaining about all the way the church is not, but asking God, how can we be better? Complaining not about all the things the church is not doing, but remember we're the church and saying, God, this is on my heart. How can I partner with you to meet this need? How can I fix this brokenness? How can I shine into this darkness? How can I walk and mend and heal and make our world whole? We are the church. We are the church. And John says you have to love your sisters and brothers. You have to love them because if you love God and you love people and you love the church, you will be the light of the world. But when we get to chapter 4, John shifts. And now he says, you know what? You guys have to have the right view of Jesus. And he boils it down to two simple things. And what I love about these two simple things is that for thousands of years now, people have been debating them, right? John says you have to have a right view of Jesus. And that view is simply this. Jesus is God. But Jesus is also Emmanuel. God takes on flesh. And the crazy thing about it is if you look at church history, if you look at everything that has the veneer of faith and religion and goodness, or even some of them look really much like Christianity, except they don't look like Jesus, right? But when you boil it down to their essential theology and what they believe, these are the two things they struggle with. And John says way back then, and he wants us to hear it today, if they say Jesus is God and Jesus is flesh, then they're from God. But if they say Jesus isn't God, or Jesus didn't really live, or Jesus didn't really die, or Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, then it's not from God, and it's from the devil. And if you look at all these different faiths, that point is what they struggle on. Everything that has the veneer of goodness, they struggle on those two things. Is Jesus God? Because that matters. And John says, did Jesus live? Because that matters too. Jesus is Lord. See, why we're having a boiling point in 1 John 4 as there was a group of Christians who, who had left the church. You know, commentarians like to call them secessionists, right? And the commentaries do a good job of explaining what all was happening back then. But I think we as Christians today, it's our job to figure out what's happening today, right? Because these same things, you know, Solomon once wrote, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And these same issues that they were raising back then and making that as their basis to leave the church, we see it today. And that's kind of the work we want to do now. You see, the secessionists left John and his group in the church because they compromised their faith. We talked about how to follow God as right living. Well, they had wrong living. They would pledge their allegiance not to the Christ, but to the emperor. They would pledge it not to the church, but to the country. So when we think about secessionists, people who don't belong in the family, people who've left the family, according to John, it's every single one who doesn't put Jesus before their president. It's every single one who looks around the room and sees flags and see them as barriers instead of seeing your sisters and brothers the world over. 
The secessionist is anyone, anyone who puts their own allegiance for country and love of country above love of God. They chose the empire, and I get it, man. There's many different reasons people leave. You know, back then, Caesar was telling them, you know, I'm persecuting you. Right? And if you just compromise your faith a little bit, I'll let you live. And I've never been in a setting where believing in Jesus, right, means that I will be killed. So I don't think it's fair for me to stand up here and be like, well, they compromised their faith. But I will say all of us here in this room are going to have to ask this question again and again. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because in our country, it's so easy to bow down to presidents, but not the king of kings. It's so easy to cite constitution and forget what scripture says. It's so easy to be proud to be an American and forget that your father has children in all the nations. That's the work we have to do so that we don't belong with the secessionists, so that we look like our Jesus, amen? And in our country, another thing we struggle with, you know, these these, um, secessionists who less, they would always choose their self over the body of believers. And that's something we can relate to in this country because we do a very good job of looking out for me and mine. But John seems to think it's got to be about us. We do a really good job of saying, Jesus so loved me. But John seems to remind us, for God so loved the world. We do a really good job to say, how am I doing with Jesus? Where's my faith with Jesus? And that might be a good question, but John says, it's not just about you. It's about us. It's always about us. God loves you. God will always love you. God will always be there for you. But when you join this family, you stop thinking about me and mine, and you start worrying about us. Pledge allegiance to the family of Christ. Amen? And this wrong view of Jesus they had back then, some would say, well, Jesus was God, you know, so he wasn't human at all, right? Or Jesus was God, or he was a regular man, and and kind of like the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon him, and that's what he did all these things. What's fascinating to me is the commentarians write this, right? Maybe they're trying to sell books and don't want to scare people, right? But they write this as like, this happened a long time ago. But I've already said it this morning. If you look at all the major faiths and religions, that's where we differ, Look at all the people who say they're Christians, you know, and they're not. They'll say, well, Jesus is a God, or, or Jesus was a God, or, or Jesus, I don't know if he really died. John says, if they don't believe that Jesus is God, they don't believe that Jesus lived, you got to test that spirit, and you got to know there's false teachers out there, because Jesus came for you, and Jesus, the one who created all things, is the one who walked this earth, is the one who died on that cross, is the one who lives again, and is the one who's your advocate. If we don't have a full gospel that Jesus came, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus will come back, that's the full gospel. It's not just about Jesus dying, because you miss a lot if you only think about death. The full gospel, as they understood it back then, that we need to understand today is all of the steps matter. Almost lost my paper. I was fired up. Another one that we do is, you know, back then they believed that they were no longer sinners. And I don't know if anyone in this room does that, right? I think we we pretty much know we're not perfect. But I think what we need to look at ourselves and check ourselves is on this, right? We love to think that our sins aren't that bad, right? We love to be like the guy in the parable who says, like, at least I'm not that person. 
I think that's what we struggle with. We might not go around saying we're perfect, but it's very easy to be like, well, at least I'm not like Hank. Right? Thank God. (laughs) We love to quantify sins. And that's what we need to work on. But the other thing that's crazy, too, is that another thing we'll see in our world is this idea that Jesus was a good teacher, that Jesus was a good person, that Jesus was, he tried, right? He had some good things to say. Where that falls short is that Jesus didn't just come to teach you, he came to save you. That Jesus didn't just come to give you good principles to hang your life on. He came to revolutionize your life. He came to change your life. That Jesus didn't just come to say, hey, nice to meet you. Put me on a bumper sticker. Jesus didn't say, hey, I am Lord of your life. I want it all. I want all of you. I want your hopes, your dreams. I want your resources. I want your gifts, your talents, your abilities. I want it all. Because if you give me your all, we will change the world. John's response to people like this is we got to test the spirits. Everything that sounds good doesn't look like Jesus. We got to know that there are false prophets out there. I think this is one of the hardest parts as Christians because we like to be nice people. At least I think we do. But we have to know if they're denying who Jesus is. And I'm not saying you need to go out there and punch them. We're pacifists, right? But if they're denying who Jesus is, we need to recognize that they don't belong to the family of faith. And I'm not saying you need to go over there and convince them, right? Please hear me on this, because my Bible tells me that God made the plan for salvation, that Jesus came and he died on that cross, that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. Nowhere in my Bible does it say, Hank has to go and save the world, or Hank has to go and convince the world, and nowhere in the Bible does it say, you have to go and save the world, and you have to convince the world. But we do have to model Jesus and introduce them to different perspectives and introduce them to what the love of God is like and tell our own stories. And I love how John ends, right? After he says, if they don't think Jesus is God, they don't think Jesus really walked among us, man, they don't belong to us, and that's why they left. But here's the thing, y'all. We are from God, and we've overcome it all. The victory is already won. And I think we do well when we think about the victory is won, right, when it comes to sin. Because we're like, yeah, he died on the cross for our sins, victory is won. But I think what John wants us to hold on to is when you see darkness in this world, you need to look at it and say the true light is already shining. When you see brokenness in this world, John doesn't want that to break you. He wants you to say the victory is already won. When you see people who are struggling, John wants us to do, and I think Jesus wants us to go to that struggle and to help raise them up. See, this idea of who is Jesus is so important to our faith. Well, one of my good friends is a pastor now at at Grantham Church, and he did this a couple weeks ago, or last week, I think it was, when he was preaching through 1 John. He talked a little bit about his story. And I listened to his story, and it was a great sermon. I was just like, man, I got better stories. Like, my story is way better than that, right? And people were like, we were moved. And I was just like, I was moved too, but my story's better. But before we get to that, I want to do something. I think it will be really, really helpful. George and Nancy stole my thunder a little bit, but we're still going to do it. This is what I want you to do. For me, this was revolutionary to hold on to. I said that in the first service, and it looked at me all scared. All I meant is that this changed my life, and I think it could change your life too because it forces us to realize God is for me and God is for us. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a minute, and I just want you to call out different names of Jesus that you know. All right, go ahead. Amen. 
Mm. Love, Emmanuel, Yahweh, the way, the truth, the life, the beginning, the end, right? We know these names of Jesus. But now I want you to do this. I want you to close your eyes and give a second. And I want you to ask God, or maybe you already know this actually, what is the name that God's been for you? When you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? What is he for you? Is he love? Is he the Messiah? Is he Yahweh? Is he the way? Is he the truth? Is he the life? And this is what blows my mind to this day, right? We know these names of Jesus. We might know who Jesus is to us, but how amazing our God is that not just for you, but for everyone in this room, for billions of people around the world, for billions of people who have lived, for billions of people who will live, Jesus is willing to be that thing for that person to bring them home. That's the God we serve. If you need a redeemer this morning, he's your redeemer. If you need a rescuer this morning, he's your rescuer. If you need someone who's the king of kings and the lord of lords, that's who he is for you. If you need the prince of peace, if you need Emmanuel, everything that you need, Jesus will be that to you. You know, Paul once said, I will be all things to all people. And we look at that, it's a great thought. And I think it's a great thought because he learned that from Jesus. Jesus is willing to be all things to all people. And whatever you need him to be this morning, if that brings you home and keeps you home for a while, he's willing to be that thing. And that's the God we serve. For billions of people, they know him personally and intimately. But for all of us, he came. Amen? And as I was thinking about the names of Jesus and my story, I feel like God asked me two questions. First one was, is Jesus the Lord of your fate? thought back to one of the first names of Jesus, I remember Savior. You know, my, my grandfather was a, a Muslim chief in Liberia. Uh, we lived, or he lived, I say we because I was a favorite grandkid, so I just got anything I wanted. But he lived in a big pink house. You know, there was a mosque in the yard, pretty active in the community. And what's fascinating about my grandfather is all his children with my grandmother, like, all ended up Christian. And he was a Muslim chief, right? So you think that would do enough to, like, mess up a kid, but... I, I persevered, right? And one of the things that was fascinating with my grandfather is I knew I was his favorite, and I wanted everyone to know. Then I got a little bit older, and I saw other grandparents, and I was just like, huh, grandparents have this unique ability to make every kid feel like grandkid feel like the favorite. That's awesome. I need to work on that, right? And then I went back to my cousins and like, oh, no, 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 no. You were the favorite. Like, it's not even a joke. Like, you were the favorite. I was like, oh, I knew all along. One of the things I remember my grandfather, my last memory of my grandfather is I went to visit him, um, and, and we would always walk the yard, and, and he had this big farm. And so in my family, all the men literally were pastors, farmers, or politicians, right? I think I picked the right one, um, or Jesus picked the right one for me, but I'll thank him later, right? But I remember walking farm, and, and after we'd walk and pick fruits and stuff, we'd go and take a nap. And I remember taking a nap with my grandfather, right? I remember waking up and looking over at him. I was like, oh, he's still sleeping, right? And my grandfather was probably in his mid-90s at the time. And I remember looking over, and I was like, all right, you're just going to lay there and pretend like you're sleeping, and, you know, I'm going to go and hide. We'll play hide-and-seek. And this is in kid time, right? So I don't know if it was like 20 seconds or 20 minutes, but I remember hiding somewhere in the house. And when my uncles walked out, I was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm hiding from grandpa, but he keeps pretending like he's sleeping. It's been a while now. And my uncle, his son, recognized right away. My dad's in his mid-90s. Like, 
What are you talking about? And my uncle didn't know what to do, right? So he's just like, you, sit there. Sit there. Go get your mother, right? And, and my uncle went. And, and what happened is my, my, my grandfather had passed away while we were napping, right? And what's fascinating about this story is my mom, right? This is like parenting 101. My mom's like, okay, let's talk about Jesus. This is your time to learn who Jesus is, right? And the funny thing is I struggled with that as a kid because I'm just like, so we talk about grief and loss and death and all that, but my mom wanted me to talk about Jesus, right? And now I have a four-year-old, right? And my four-year-old is, is, is a lot sharper than I ever was, I think, you know? Like, two years ago, there was an ice cream place that opened in Midtown, and, and literally we took her there once. And for the last two years, I've been driving in and around that place because if she even sees the color, like, it doesn't matter if it's January or June, right? If she sees the color of that place, we're getting ice cream, right? So she's very, very sharp. So I think I've learned to give my mom a little bit of grace. Because for my mom, it was like, you need to know that Jesus is Lord of your fate. It doesn't matter how old you are, but you need to know that Jesus is in control. And that's what she was doing. And I wish to say that that's what got me, right? But you know what got me? Is I then remember going to the wake and going to the funeral. I remember even though I was four years old, because I was a man, I was allowed to sit in the front. My grandmom had to sit in the back. I also remember when we went to the burial, my grandma, who had been his wife for 50, 60 years, we had to find an apartment that was a block away that was high enough so that she can see her husband lowered in the ground. Because she was a woman, she wasn't allowed in the cemetery. And I remember sitting there as a four-year-old and thinking, this is crazy. I remember something seared in me that day because I realized I didn't know at all about Jesus. But I know a God who separates men and women and uplifts one above the other, that's not a God I want to serve. And I remember making that decision at four years old. It just didn't feel right. The second interaction I had with Jesus was the time I feel like I did accept him as not just my shepherd, not just my savior, my shepherd. When I was seven years, six years old, war broke out in Liberia. And, and there was a civil war, and we had never had war before. And the thing about my dad is everyone who knew my dad says three things, right? He loved God, he loved his family, and he loved his country. So when the war broke out, my dad's stance was simply this, right? They will burn it down, but we will build it back up, right? What I love about my dad and even my grandfather is that I, have, I come from this long line of West African pacifists. There's like four of us, right? Like, <laughs> So that's who my kids have on one side. But then my wife has 400 years of Anabaptist blood flowing through her veins, right? So I love that my kids have both of that heritage, right? But I remember when the war broke out, my, I left with my grandmother, right? Um, her husband had passed away. She came and sat all the kids down and said, we need to get out. Everyone stayed. My mom sent me off, right? But I remember going to sleep one night. And it's funny. When I tell this story, I have two premises. When I tell it to a Western audience, I say, hey, Whatever you need to believe to sleep at night, that's fine with me. I don't really care, right? Like, if you think it was just a dream, it's just a dream, that's cool with you. When I thought to non-Western audiences, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I went to sleep, I woke up, and an angel came to me, right? I remember waking up in the middle of the night. I remember the bright light, and I remember not being able to see. I remember, like, everything you read in the scriptures, do not be afraid. I remember being terrified. But I remember this feeling of peace that flowed through me. I remember this exact message, right? Your father has to go away now, but trust your heavenly father. He'll show you how. And I remember sitting there thinking, this has got to be kind of important. And I remember even at seven years old writing that down on a piece of paper. The next morning, I was so excited. I woke up and I went to tell my Muslim grandmother. And I remember her like looking at me like, shut up, eat your food. 
you know? And again, I've learned grace and forgiveness, and I realized that for my Muslim grandmother, the last time an angel appeared to a person was the angel Gabriel to give the Quran to Muhammad, right? God doesn't waste his time on seven-year-olds. I remember thinking, like, this is important, so I wrote it down. Days went by, weeks went by, months went by, wouldn't hear from my parents. And as a, as, a, as a mischievous little boy, I realized something. I realized my grandmom was lying to me. I don't know how I got this, right? So I locked myself in her room. I flipped the room upside down, right? I knew I was going to get a butt whooping, so I was going to get my money's worth, right? Flipped the room upside down until I found this letter. And you have to understand, my parents are the ones who taught me to read and write. My dad was forced out of the government, so he didn't really have a job. So all he did was hang out with me. So I recognized my parents' handwriting. I recognized my mom's handwriting. I remember opening the letter. I remember reading, and in the letter, my mom describes the night that the rebels finally hit Monrovia and the night that they came and took my dad. And I remember reading that. You would think as a kid I'd be, like, breaking down and crying. But you know what my mind did? I was like, huh, that night seems familiar. I remember taking that letter. I remember walking to my room and digging up my room and flipping that room upside down. I remember finding that piece of paper. And wouldn't you know it, the same night I saw that angel was the same night my dad was taken and my dad was killed. And that was the day I realized that this God who wants to control my fate is also the protector who will guide me. The third one's not as happy, but it's necessary. One of the things I think God always asks us is, is, am I the Lord of your heart? You know, one of the things I think for some of us as Americans, you know, um, as Christians, we're, we're just now learning that America's been a racist society for 400 years. It's news to some of us, right? But it's okay, we'll welcome you along. Um, it's news to people to like hold this Thomas Jefferson who espoused all these great ideas and Monticello's beautiful. And then you look at the slave quarters and that doesn't even get us started with Sally Hemings, right? It's new to some of us that this is a very racist country. It's the foundation of this country is racism, right? It's new to some of us, but welcome along. What I wasn't ready for as a 19, 20 year old was that Christians can be the espousers of this racism. You know, I went to Messiah College, and I love Messiah College. When I was in Messiah College, it was literally like 10 black people on campus. Maybe 20 if you want to be gracious, right? And I preface that to say that, like, I never dated a white person in Messiah College. It was black and Latino. Like, there's 20 of us we hung out, right? But what's fascinating about that is the first time I ever dated someone who wasn't black or Latino, right, was a girl who I grew up with. Like, we went to the same camp. We, the first time I preached at a church that wasn't my home church was their church, right? Our families had vacation together. But I remember as soon as we started dating, to this day we're friends, which is kind of weird, but it's funny now. Um, we say we dated for like four days and fought her parents for 10 months. Because in those 10 months, I saw blatant racism from Christians. Not the kind where you're just like, mm, I'm not sure, was that racism? Like, I don't know, you know? Not the like when you go to the West Shore or something and someone looks at you, fun. not that kind of racism. Like the one where they would drive to college and wake her up in the middle of the night and say, I can't believe my beautiful Italian daughter fell in love with one of them. Like the one that says like, why do you keep talking about Jesus? You're black and, and if God wanted you to be with my daughter, you'd have to be white. That kind of racism was what I faced. And I remember I came out of that situation and I had this live and love like Jesus, I tried my best. And I think for the most part I did well. But coming to this church healed me on many levels, right? One of the things I think healed me the most was my wife and I, we weren't even dating at the time, right? And she was just like, hey, tell me about yourself. And I was just waxing poetic like I love to do, telling stories, you know? And I remember, though, at the end of this story, I was just like, 
yeah, so that's why I don't really trust white people. You know, like this country's been racist for 400 years and they just smile at me and they treat me like crap. That's what white Christians do in this country. And I got history. But I remember my wife, who, like, she seems very meek and humble, but I remember her saying this simple word changed my life. And she said, very, very interesting. That you're like Mr. You know, Jesus, you know, Mr. Reconciler, Mr. God's gonna bring us all together. But you don't even like white people. And I was like, ooh, that's a word. <laughs> you know, I was just like, I might need to reassess the situation, right? And, and most people know, or most people don't know when they fell in love. Me, I was like, ooh, this is, this is, she's a keeper, you know? <laughs> I've been married almost 10 years. But I think what I got out of that, though, was that Jesus is the reconciler. When we look at this country, there's so many. And I love when people are like, we're more polarized than ever. I was like, really? Like, we used to kill black people. Like, literally, we used to hang them up on trees, right? People are like, oh, there's just so much polarization in the country. I was like, we used to enslave people. Like, every single minority group in this country, black, white, Latino. And I say white because Italian, Irish, right? Every single minority in this country has been oppressed, in, our, in our, our Christian nation. You name a group, we've been oppressive to them, right? Ask Japanese people about World War II in this country, right? Like, it's, when people say it's a Christian nation, I was like, I don't want that Jesus. I want the one in the Bible, right? But I'm saying all that to say this, though. And why I love this church is because we're fighting the grain. We're actually saying we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're actually saying however this world divides us, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, Republican, Democrat, rural, suburban, urban, we're saying we choose Christ and Christ crucified. And that doesn't mean it's easy. And that doesn't mean it's easy. But that does mean that we have to go back to what John says. Are we choosing Jesus and making him king? And are we choosing the brethren? Are we choosing all that we know? It's Jesus, our reconciler this morning. So those three things I felt like Jesus said to me, I'm going to be your savior. I am your shepherd. And I'm the one who reconciles. And because of that, I love Jesus. I want to invite Randy and Marilyn up. We're going to end with a closing song, My Jesus, I Love Thee. And I want us to sing this as a response to a God who loves us. As a response to a God who says, I choose you. I'm going to steal a little bit of Randy's thunder, but I actually did some research, and I learned this song was written by William Featherston, right? And with all our technology, we still can't figure out if he wrote this song at 12 or 16 years old. Both of them are impressive to me, right? And the guy who founded Gordon College actually put it to the poem to music, right? But what I love about this song that I learned this week is it actually harkens back to when Jesus comes back to Peter, and he restores him in John 21, 15, when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? So I'd like to invite the intercessors up. We'll pray for you for anything that's going on. But as we sing this song, I want you to sing as your answer to God. Yes, Jesus, my Lord, I love thee. Let's sing together.